Amen, Pastor Chris. Thank you, brother. Well, if you would, open up your Bibles to the book of Revelation. In Revelation 19 through 21, but we're just going to read verses 11, starting in, in, in chapter 20, 11 through 21, 4, as we kind of narrow our focus uh, upon this passage. <clears throat> Revelation's the last book of the Bible. So Revelation 20, and I invite you to follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 11. <clears throat> then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, in it and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Well, when the uh, COVID crisis first hit, I actually had a couple of weeks where I was out of the pulpit and had some time to maybe get my thoughts together, think about what would be good for us as I came back into the pulpit. And I decided that I thought it'd be helpful for us to turn and look at the Bible and what the Bible has to say about evil and suffering. Hence, kind of the title of the series has been, Where's God When Trouble Strikes? Uh, or Where's God Not Losing Faith When Trouble Strikes? And that's really been the question. Where is God when we see evil in the world? Where's God when COVID happens? Or you can fill in anything in there, really. Where's God when cancer strikes? Where's God when death strikes? When, where's God when tragedy strikes? Because if we can answer that question, importantly, biblically, if we can answer that question biblically, then we'll be able to hold fast to Christ. We'll be able to hold fast to Him and not lose our faith when trouble strikes. It's interesting to see most people lose their faith, uh, maybe turn to atheism or turn away from Christianity because of some great trial, some great hurt that occurred to them. 
And while they might have had great theology, it seems that when it came down to this trial, whatever it might have been, it struck just too close to home. And they were done with the God of the Bible. Well, that's my prayer that that would not happen to any of us, whether COVID or any other trial should come. But rather than falling away from Christ, we would hold fast to Christ because we understand that one of the many purposes that God has in in bringing trials into our lives is, as James notes, for the testing of our faith. And that testing, it's, it's, it's a refining, a, a, tress, a testing or, or um, of, of purifying, if you will, of our faith to actually produce steadfastness within us, to produce an endurance within us so that we would hold fast to Christ, we would hold fast and be committed to Him no matter what happens. However, when trouble does strike, when things like this occur that we're all experiencing, and maybe for you, this is, this is like a, 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 the straw that breaks the camel's back. Maybe there's a host of issues going on in your life, and now this. And, and I know that COVID's brought different trials to different people. Maybe this happens. And now you're tempted to doubt God. In fact, that's exactly where we're often tempted when trouble happens. And I think there's four ways that we're often uh, to be tempted when trouble happens or tempted to doubt God. And the first way is that we're often tempted to doubt His goodness. Maybe you found yourself crying out, God, why have you done this to me? Have you ever said that? Maybe you're saying that now. Maybe you've lost your job. Or maybe you've lost a loved one due to COVID. Or, or maybe the circumstances have has caused great fear in your life. And you have cried out and said, Lord, why are you doing this to me? As if he wills evil against you. Or maybe you doubt his sovereignty. This is the second way that we often doubt God. And maybe we cry out and we, and we wonder. Maybe we utter these words. Is God able to do anything about this? We also may doubt his purposes. We look at the evil around us, maybe the evil done to us, and we, and we couldn't possibly think of any way that God could be working good in it. And then finally, I think that we, we caught, we're often caused to doubt God's justice. And we begin to wonder, will he ever do anything to stop this? We look at the evils of the world and we begin to wonder, will God put an end to this? And maybe we begin to doubt his justice in the world. Well, these questions have really been behind every sermon. Every sermon has actually meant to address each one of these doubts. So the first week we looked at the origin of evil to see that God is good. And he is not the author of evil. He is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. So that we'd be anchored not to doubt his goodness. But week two then examined the limits of evil, and, and particularly highlighted the sovereignty of God through the Joseph narrative to show that, that yes, he's good, but he's also in control, and he is working things according to his good pleasure. Then last week, we turned our eyes upon the cross the resurrection. And we saw how 
God's purposes, even in the midst of evil, culminated in his great redemptive plan that was accomplished on the cross and that that Satan himself, though he thought he could wield the sword against, of death against Christ, actually produced the greatest victory in his own defeat. And so we saw evil's defeat, and that in the cross, justice was satisfied. The, the accuser has been silenced, and Jesus has absorbed death forever for us. Well, this brings us to our passage this morning where we're going to now look to evil's banishment and see that justice will prevail. God will put an end to all evil in the world. And as he does so, he's going to establish his kingdom on earth. It's actually this glorious truth that is the hope of every believer. And it should be the hope that I, I'm praying that you long for. I'm praying COVID has ripped our hands off the crumbling sand of this world and is producing in us a great longing for heaven that we would say, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. And we are longing for this kingdom that we're going to see here this morning, that we would have our hope not in rulers of this world, not in ourselves, but that God would rise up and put an end to all evil, that justice would be perfectly meted out. True justice would occur in this world. It would be perfectly served, and the world would be put in order. The world would be put right and that everything that is broken or taken away from us would be restored again. Do you hope for that? That everything that is broken, everything that is sad would become untrue. That's the hope that is in this text this morning. Every hurt is going to be undone. Every longing of your heart satisfied. Every blemish wiped away. All guilt removed. Faith will become sight. This is the hope that is promised never to disappoint. Have you ever been disappointed? Have you ever had your hopes built up only to come crashing down? Sure you have. We've all experienced that. One that's rather trivial, but it's true nonetheless. Back in 2015, I had my hopes built up as I saw the Force Awakens trailer. As I saw that new Star Wars trailer come out, going to continue the great saga of Luke Skywalker. We're going to continue this glorious story. And I'm not going to lie, when I saw that trailer, tears welled up in my eyes. I began to have Tears, not of sadness, of great joy. I was overwhelmed by the story, and I was overwhelmed with hope. This is going to be amazing, and I could not wait, even though it seemed like it was going to be ages before the movie actually came out. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not hating too much. I, I enjoyed the movie. I enjoyed every movie, but it didn't satisfy. It actually brought disappointment. It couldn't live up to the hype. We experience that all the time, don't we? This world never lives up to the hype. Nothing ever satisfies. And if it does satisfy, 
the satisfaction's gone. It doesn't last. But what I want us to see is that though this world is full of disappointment, it is corrupt goodness. When the kingdom of heaven appears, there will be no disappointment. There will be no disappointment. And so every trial, every heartache, every defeat actually is a reminder for us. It's a reminder that we are not of this world any longer. We do not belong to this world, but we belong into the world to come, the age to come. And so with all the saints, all the saints, and you can see their laments, particularly through the Psalms, but even at the beginning of the book of Revelation, there is a constant cry that says, How long, O Lord? How long? When will you act a pleading, a begging for God to rise up and put an end to this world and bring in the world to come? A pleading with God, asking Him to hear our cries for help. Do you cry out for help? Are you too much in love with this world? What we're going to see this morning is that our cries for evil's banishment are going to be heard. But until that day, we're exhorted to remain steadfast. We're exhorted to remain faithful as we hope in Christ's return, Christ's retribution, and Christ's renewal. Until that day, brothers and sisters, we are to set our gaze upon heaven in anticipation of what the Scriptures call the blessed hope the blessed hope of the return of Christ. And where I want us to pick up in our passage, I'm not going to be able to handle every text, but I hope to put this together to give us a great sense of what's going on. But we're going to pick up in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And where this text picks up is at the day and hour that no one knows. It's the return of Christ, which is told elsewhere in Scripture to come like a thief in the night. And what we're going to see is that with him, all that is pure, all that is true, all that is just is going to pour out from heaven upon the earth. However, in doing so, as Jesus is revealed and every eye beholds him, it will either be a great day of relief and cry of victory and hallelujah, or it will be a great and terrible day. Because in this text we are reminded that as Jesus comes on a white horse, that he is coming to judge and make war on the earth. Unlike Jesus' first coming, where Jesus says, I did not come to judge or condemn the world, but to save the world. At his second coming, he comes to destroy all those who oppose him. As verse 15 says, he will come and he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Do you remember that phrase last sermon, last week? Why did the dragon want to destroy the child who is going to be birthed? Because he was going to be the one who would rule the nations with a rod of iron and he would smash the dragon and his kingdoms. Well, this day is what is pictured here. That day has come. He is coming with his rod to discipline 
And as Psalm 2 reminds us, with his rod, he is going to break the nations into pieces like a potter's vessel. And so at the return of Christ, Christ is coming with all fury and wrath, and the judgment of God will be meted out upon all people, all nations who gather to oppose him. That's really the picture here. He is coming to make war on the nations. Now the Apostle Paul refers to this battle in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 as the rebellion. He says the Lord will not return until the rebellion has occurred. And he, and he says that that rebellion is going to be led by a man of lawlessness. Well, who, who is this man of lawlessness? Well, we more commonly know him or refer to him as the Antichrist. The Antichrist is a political leader who will convince the whole world, all the nations, to oppose Christianity, to, to essentially uh, pull off a worldwide scale of persecution, to try and stamp out the whole church. He's also referred to the beast throughout Revelation, and even here in our text, you can see in verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him, that's Jesus, who is seated on the horse and against his army, that's us. There is a war going on that's being depicted here, and he's referred as a beast. We saw him as a dragon last Sunday. And he gathers the kings of the earth and their armies to make war against Christ and his church. But remember, if you, if you were listening last week, what, what is the book of Revelation doing for us? It, it provides kind of a, a lifting of the veil, a lens for us to, to see behind the physical realm, to, to, to be able to perceive the spiritual forces at work behind us that we can't see with our naked eye. And what we're seeing is the whole world and its kingdom, its values, is opposed to God. And I do think this is going to continue to escalate and, and come to some climactic moment that's being described here. But we're seeing the forces of evil at work here. But we're now going to see what it looks like when Christ returns. And so the kingdoms of this world who are going to be led by an antichrist, here described as a ferocious beast seeking whom he may devour, he's accompanied with the kingdom of this world. But he's also accompanied with another figure. Look in verse 20. Verse 20, and the beast was captured and with it the false prophet. Now, throughout Revelation, there's this other figure, the false prophet, who is a, a figurative figure. He, he might be a real person. I don't know. But he represents the false religion of this world, the false ideas, the false values, everything that opposes God and his truth. Everything. And he is the one who deceives the, the lies of the evil one, deceive the people of this world to worship the beast, that is, the kingdom of this world, rather than Christ. And if you think about it, it's, it's very effective, isn't it? Every single form of media is the liturgy of the kingdom of this world. 
It is all filled, yes, with corrupted truth, but it's corrupt nevertheless. Seeking to cause you to fall in love with this kingdom which is passing away, but it doesn't want you to believe it is. Everything, every show you turn on is opposed to the righteousness of God. It is undermining every value system, although there are truths in it and goodness in it. I'm not, I'm not saying there's nothing good in it, but I fear that many of us do not see what is at work, that the value system of the world is being pumped into us, and often we are oblivious to it, and we just drink it up like it's no thing. And here we're seeing it's, it's, it's described as a battle. It is described as a war, and there are spiritual forces that are seeking to deceive this whole world. Everything is opposed to Christ in this kingdom. However, what I want you to notice is that at the return of Christ, all evil powers, kingdoms, nations, and evildoers who oppose Christ and his righteousness are going to be struck down. The image is rather stark. We see Christ coming, and he strikes them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. In verses 18 and 19, it's described as the vultures coming and getting prepared to feast on the flesh of mankind. It is going to be a bloodbath. Now again, this is, how's this bloodbath happening? Well, a sword comes out of Jesus' mouth. And that sword represents the two-edged sword of the Word of God. He will destroy this world with the truth. He will speak a word, and the kingdoms of this world will obliterate. They'll be judged. They'll be struck down. In other words, when Jesus returns, he's going to clean house. He's going to wipe it clean. As for the beast and the false prophet, that's the Antichrist or political system, world kingdoms opposed to God, and even the false religions, false ideologies that's representing the beast and the false prophet, what happens to them? Well, we see in verse 20 that they'll be captured, and they're going to be thrown into the lake of fire. That's hell. We're going to come back to that. They're going to be thrown in the lake of fire, the beast and all false ideas, so that they're no more so that there are no more evil kingdoms and no evil lies in this world. And you will see them for what they are. This judgment will also be meted out against Satan himself. This is the great deceiver. Elsewhere, uh, the book of Revelation says the beast and the false prophet are empowered by Satan. So he's the, the mastermind behind all of it. And he's the great deceiver who is trying to draw all people away from Christ and to destroy them. Do you realize the things of this world, the, the, the messaging of this world, the kingdom of this world is a satanic ploy to destroy you? Might change what you think about it. But here we see in, in, in chapter 20, verse 10, that Satan too will be thrown into the lake of fire. The devil who has deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. But don't miss this. 
Chapter 19, verse 21. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. Who are the rest? That is all humanity. That is the army of the beast and the false prophet. That is all those who have sided with the kingdom of this world. All those who have made a decision. And, and Jesus, in his preaching, always draws the line in the sand. He says, you're either with me or you're against me. You will not be neutral. And even, even the neutral are opposing him. And they are found to be slain at his return. Brothers and sisters, this is a horrific description, isn't it? This is a, a, a horrific description of what is also known as the great and terrible day of the Lord. But as we look here, it is a reminder that resistance to Christ is futile. It's futile. Now just think for a minute. The evil kingdoms and values of this world are going to come to an end. No matter how strong, no matter how sophisticated, no matter how furious they seem, and, they, and don't they seem that way? Compared to the church, the kingdoms of this world appear unstoppable, don't they? Oh, and their enticements, oh, their promises, the offerings that they bring, they seem so good, I can't live without them. And yet you're being able to see it's fool's gold. And it actually leads to destruction. God's words lifting the veil for us to see what is really behind this evil world system so that you can see its true nature and the emptiness of its promises. But unlike the evil dictators of this world, the evil abusers of power in this world, and they seem to abound, don't they? Unlike them, Christ how is he described, verse 11? He is the one who is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. What we're seeing is, though the world says everything I just told you is evil, some of you are thinking, that's legalism, that's bad. The veil's being lifted and saying, no, you're seeing what's good and what's true and what's right, and that's Christ. You're seeing him. He's a just and good king. He is one whom we should gladly give our loyalty to, even in the face of the world's opposition, even in the face of the world's hostility, even in the face of shame. Because if you take the Bible seriously, if we take it seriously, we will be mocked. And here's the thing. Some Christians will even mock you because they are so enticed by the world. You are silly. Take these things too seriously. As I come to the Word of God, it is a very serious matter. Because when Jesus comes, we see that his eyes are like flames of fire. And he is able to penetrate into 
the heart of every human being and judge with equity. And it's this judgment that's going to follow his return and bring about a just retribution to all evil. And so I want us to jump down now to um, chapter 20, verse 11. The judgment at Christ's return leads to a great judgment, a great white throne, if you will. A great judgment of all humanity, including death itself. Now seeing what, what is happening, how the word that's like a sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth is going to wreak havoc and judgment upon the world. We're now seeing it. Getting a zoom-in lens, if you will, beginning in verse 11. And at this judgment, all are going to stand before a pure throne of God and give an account for their lives. You see that? It's a white throne representing purity and all that is holy. Just as we read in Daniel, the Ancient of Days set upon the throne and flames of fire consume around it and consume all those who stand before it as they're judged by the books. And this is what we're seeing. But if you look at the second sentence in verse 11, we see this great throne and one who's seated on it. And what happens when this throne is revealed? Well, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. What a scene. Earth and sky fled away and there was no place for them. The earth and heaven is literally undone in every way conceivable. What is this talking about? The revelation of God is so pure that this fallen creation is completely undone. This scene appears to be the same thing that, that Peter speaks about in 2 Peter chapter 3. And this is what Peter says will occur when Jesus returns. He says, the heavens and the earth will pass with a roar. Have you ever heard a flame a catch and the roar that it has? Maybe I know when I was younger, I liked to light a lot of things on fire, douse it with gasoline, and that moment that you lit it, it sucked all the oxygen, and you just heard it go, Whoo. this is going to be a roar that the whole earth can hear. It will pass with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Everything will come to bear on this day. There will be nowhere to hide from God's presence. All things, including the secret intentions of the heart, will be laid bare before all. And this is the picture we get when we see, uh, continuing in verse 12, that all the dead stand before the throne and the books are open. What, what are these books? Well, again, we're, we're dealing probably with figurative language here. I don't I don't think God has a library that he's going to go through all of them, but they, they, they speak to God's perfect recounting of everything that has occurred, including every idle and careless word we have ever spoken. It's his perfect recounting of our works in light of his righteousness. And what the picture and the scene is presenting to us is that this will be a just sentencing. It will be just because all the evidence will be perfectly presented. Nothing will be thrown out. 
That, that evidence can't be tampered with. This will all be presented before God. And everyone will be adjudged, verse 13, according to what they had done. What a terrible thought. And they will stand before the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire, penetrating the secret intentions of their heart. All things are going to be revealed on that day. Yet there's one book that's singled out, isn't there? There's one book, and because it's singled out, it appears to matter more than all the other books. And it's a glorious book at that. It's called the Book of Life. And elsewhere in the book of Revelation, it's given an even better title, a more full title, if you will. The book of life of the Lamb who was slain. I love that title. This is the Lamb's book of life. And the book contains the names of all who have been redeemed, all who have been purchased, all who have been ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus on the cross. Now we're going to come to that good news in just a moment. We are getting to some good things. But for now, what's important to see is that everyone, verse 15, anyone's name was not found written in that book, the book of life, what happens to them? They are thrown into the lake of fire. They are thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet and Satan, where Hades and death are all in. They are thrown in with them. We need to think about this. What is the lake of fire? Well, we most commonly refer to it as hell. Refer to it as hell, and, and here it's, it's, it's specifically identified as the second death, verse 14. What is this? What is the second death? What is hell? What is the lake of fire? Well, it is an eternal death, not an annihilation. It is a place where the wicked will be justly tormented day and night forever and ever. Did you see that back in, in verse 10? That's where the beast and the false prophet and Satan are, where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Well, this is the same location that all those who stand condemned before the throne of God will be thrown in. All those who do not have their names written in the Lamb's book of life, they will be placed here. Jesus actually speaks about hell more than anybody else, anything else in the Scriptures, including the book of Revelation. And Jesus describes hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. You can see that in Matthew 24. And so on the one hand, when we're thinking about the reality of hell, what is this lake of fire like? Well, it will first of all be a place of great sorrow. And regret. Now this sorrow, it is not a sorrow, oh, I should have trusted Jesus. I should have believed the gospel. I should have trusted Christ. I should have worshipped him and not worshipped the beast. He's not going to be that. No, this sorrow is a godless sorrow. It is a worldly sorrow. It is a sorrow of complete hopelessness. The, the sorrow of, of, of pain everlasting, the, the pain of loneliness. It's 
It's a sorrow of, of loss of everything that is good that you know you will never experience again. And what a thought. We don't want to think about that, do we? Imagine a place where there is nothing good. Nothing. Everything is evil. No mercy, no relief, no good. You think of fire, being in a consuming fire, the pain, but have you ever maybe gotten too close to a campfire and the smoke consumes you and burns your eyes and you cannot breathe? That forever. It's a place of great sorrow because you know you'll never experience another good thing again and yet probably memories of goodness, but yet not memories of happy times, the glory days, but of how they'll never be. Secondly, it's obviously also a place of everlasting torment. It's gnashing of teeth, as Jesus says. It's, it's as terrifying as possible. It's a lake of fire. It's like lava, if you've ever seen it. it, it it's bringing these terrifying imagery to you. Now, a lake of fire. Fire is always expressive of the judgment of God. And so we're, we're right to say that hell is a place where you're forever uh, away from the presence of God. Well, that's in his love and his goodness and his purity and his joy. But no, you will be sustained by God in hell, by his fiery judgment. The flames that consume the throne will strike and fuel the, the flames of fire forever. Fire always in the Bible refers to the judgment of God. And it is used also here to describe the most uh, uh, horrific torment imaginable. It is a condescension to our weak and finite minds. This is as worse as it could possibly be conceived, and yet it will not do justice to the terror it will be. Hell is awful. It is horrific. It is inconceivable. Things that you cannot even imagine. And it lasts forever. It's eternal. It is an eternal place of conscious torment. Now, now when we think of the resurrection, we think of our resurrection to glory and beauty and splendor. But there is a resurrection to everlasting punishment as well. When the death in Hades give up the dead who are in them, that is the resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And so what happens in hell is even the wicked and evildoer, all those who do not trust in Christ, who are not written in their names in the Lamb's book of life, <clears throat> they too will be resurrected and given perfect bodies suited for the eternal dying that they will experience. <clears throat> Now, just the thought of that is unbearable, isn't it? It seems morbid. It seems inconceivable, <clears throat> even repulsive, if you will, to our sensibilities. I can't fathom that. It just seems wrong that any human being would belong here. And that's the very point. God did not create hell for humans. 
It's not the place we are supposed to be. It was created for Satan and his falling angels, Matthew 25, 41. 2 Peter 2, 4. <clears throat> However, here is the insanity of it all. That despite the, the proliptic judgments, that means the anticipatory judgments that are coming upon the earth that we experience in natural evil, COVID-19, the world still refuses to repent. <clears throat> and so what we see is all those who reject the lamb take their lot with the dragon. All those who reject the lamb take their lot with the dragon where they will be banished from the presence of God's mercy forever. It will be a complete giving over to evil. Where in Revelation twenty two eleven it says, Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy. This is an important point that I think many Christians don't realize. Hell doesn't produce repentance. Hell doesn't produce regeneration and you wish you had trusted Jesus. No, it is a fully giving you over to the terrors of evil in your very own heart. Do not be mistaken. Those in hell will hate Jesus for eternity. They will hate him. And they will grow in their hatred as they're giving fully over to their evil. They will do evil for eternity. And they will therefore be judged for eternity. That is the nature of the lake of fire. They will be given over to the wickedness of their heart completely so that they will be judged accordingly. Now with that terrible note, I'm confident of better things for you and me. For you and me who have trusted Christ. For you and me whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. I'm confident that he who redeemed us and rescued us will make all things new for us. And that's exactly what we see here in Revelation 21 with the renewal of Christ. After the judgment and the undoing of creation, creation itself is going to be renewed. It too is going to be resurrected. And this is what John describes in Revelation 21 verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. How refreshing after coming off into those terrors of the lake of fire. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And the sea was no more. There is going to be a new world, thank the Lord. There is going to be a new heaven where heaven and earth are actually united, not separated. And the forces of evil, which are represented by the sea, the abyss, will be no more. And so we get a picture of heaven coming down to earth, presented like a pure bride adorned for her husband. And so just like the beautiful, uh, a beautiful marriage, I remember my marriage day and seeing my beautiful wife and those doors opening up and that marking the day in which I am going to start a new joyful life with this woman. So heaven is presented like that day. You are beginning at the new heavens and the new earth with a joyful new existence that is nothing like the previous one, at least in all its ills. 
by which you will be not in eternal sorrow and torment, but no, you will be in eternal joy and bliss in the presence of God. But right now we're in the engagement period. And as the wise Tom Petty said, the waiting is the hardest part. And so this new life together with our Creator, it's the opposite of hell. It's eternal joy and pleasure in the presence of God. Do you see that? The whole thing crescendos in that God is our reward. It is His presence, His dwelling with Him and us forever and ever. Everything lost in the Garden of Eden is going to be restored. The curse is going to be removed. Our pains are going to be revealed or relieved. Our sorrow is going to be comforted. And I love this verse 5. Jesus says, Behold, or excuse me, behold, I am making all things new. Just think about that. Everything's going to be made new. Everything that was corrupted is going to be incorruptible. Everything's going to be new, including you. You're going to be made new. You're going to be given a resurrected body that is perfectly suited for immortality and eternal life. Go read 1 Corinthians 15. Everything lost. Imagine all the loss in this world. Everything lost will be regained. Everything. Every suffering we've experienced now will not compare to the glories to be revealed. And by dwelling in God's presence, all our longings are going to be satisfied. There's going to be no threat of loss. That's the point that keeps being reiterated. There's no sea. Look in verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portions in the lake of fire which is the second death. That's another realm. All that is there. But we're in the new heavens and new earth. The same thing happens. Again, in, in, in verse 25, the gates to this kingdom will never be shut. Why? Because you never have to worry about enemies coming in. And there will never be darkness. There will be no night there. And verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it, no, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There will be no slithery snake coming into this garden who will undo and deceive us and, and cause a fall again. There will be no fall, no potential for fall ever again. This will be perfection. It will be glorious. Now, don't, don't, don't miss this. We sometimes think of heaven as this awful place of, of spiritual dwelling, that, of nothingness, maybe angels playing harps constantly, and us just sitting on clouds for eternity. That's not heaven. It's this earth resurrected. It's everything good on this planet with no threats or potential or hint of evil. A world that seems glorious beyond our imagination. It is a physical world. We will work. We will do things. We will rule. We will reign. We will enjoy. We will explore. And there will be no sin, no limitation that we have experienced now. 
because we're going to be glorified and made righteous to, to eternally do what is righteous. While those in hell will continually to do what is evil, we will continue to do what is right and be holy and still do holiness. It's the exact opposite. And so we see in our text 21 verse 7, what are we going to inherit? We're going to inherit the kingdom of Christ and we are going to be treated like sons of God because we will be. This sounds amazing, doesn't it? Sounds wonderful. That's still yet to come. But we can rest that God will net out justice one day. But how, how should we process this world then? How should we think about this world and the evil that abounds? As I close, I want to give you just two quick things. First, you need to realize that if you are in Christ, if you're in Christ, this is the only hell you'll ever know. If you're in Christ, this is the only hell you'll ever know. But if you are not in Christ and you do not come to Christ, well, this will be the only heaven you'll ever know. But secondly, we need to understand that all that is evil in this world, moral and what we call natural evil, natural disasters, COVID, disease, cancer, all evil in this world and the consequence it bears are just a foretaste of the judgment to come. COVID-19 and every other evil in this world anticipates God's judgment coming upon the whole world. But on the flip side, every good thing in this world is just a foretaste of the goodness of God in heaven. This is why Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or do you love the things of this world? He says, blessed are they, for they will be satisfied. And so as I close here, let the evil of this world drive you to Christ. But more importantly, let everything that is good in this world drive you to Christ. Because everything that is good comes from Him. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for that day. For on that day, you will be satisfied. Let's pray. Jesus, you will not disappoint. Every good thing is meant to drive us to you. For you are faithful and you are true. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us. Lord, the, the call of this sermon is to lay hold to you, to never let go to continually flee the things of this world, but so easily grip our heart. And Lord, may, may the thing, may COVID just teach us. May it just be a taste that some of the things that we have loved, we shouldn't love anymore. We should gladly give them up. But those good things of this world, may they be propelling us to set our gaze in heaven where everything will be good and evil will be no more. 
Lord, keep these truths on the forefront of our heart, the forefront of our minds, and let us encourage one another with these words until that day comes. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.